This is your boy Dak from the 410 Gaming Podcast, and you are currently listening to the California Dreaming Podcast on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats, so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. Do you guys remember those old electronic stores that used to be around before Best Buy or even Fry's Electronics? When I was really young, I don't exactly recall there being these dedicated electronics and technology superstores. Department stores were kind of the big thing, like Sears or Montgomery Wards, places like that. And because my dad was retired from the Navy, we'd shop at the PX a lot. But in the 1980s, Circuit City started popping up all over the place. Circuit City was founded in 1949, but was called the Wards Company, and it was a pioneer of the electronic superstores as the 70s rolled around. After several acquisitions and a good run on the stock exchange, it officially changed its name to Circuit City. The stores went defunct in 2009 and the website followed in 2012. In 2016, there were plans to bring back a reinvented Circuit City as a consumer electronics retailer with a focus on modern technology. But as of this past February, Plans have been indefinitely postponed. There was also a competitor store. And many of you who may be familiar with Circuit City may not be as familiar with this one. It was called The Good Guys. Not to be confused with the Good Guys stores in Australia and New Zealand that is not associated with the chain store that we are going to be talking about today. This was an American company that went completely defunct in 2006. Like Circuit City, it was a chain of consumer electronics stores founded in 1973, but mostly located on the west coast of the United States. They had 71 stores in California, Nevada, Oregon, and Washington. So unless you're from those areas that I've mentioned, you may not have ever heard of the good guys. There was one in the city I grew up in, and today I think the building is either a furniture store, or it might even be completely abandoned at the moment. I might take a drive by and see how it looks today. I'm pretty sure from what I recall from passing by there so many times and not really paying attention that it still resembles what the good guys stores used to look like. And if any of you have ever worked in a store like this, then you know you are sometimes working with some high-end merchandise. Now, I never worked at either of those stores. But I did work at a Toys R Us for a time, which, by the way, 
completely shut down yesterday, which is really sad. And I used to work at the Office Depot. And both of those stores did sell expensive electronics, and everything was always kept under lock and key, particularly Office Depot. And it was around the time that I was employed there that we had received an email. Well, it may have been a fax because this was the late 90s, but either way, we got noticed that the Office Depots in the Southern California area had been the target of some recent robberies. And it was surmised that it had been kind of an inside job because the people committing the burglaries seemed to know the process of the armored car pickups as well as who had the keys to where the expensive electronics were stored. Fortunately, nothing like that has ever happened to me while I've been at work. But to be honest with you, a takeover robbery or a smash and grab, as frightening as that might be in the moment, is not nearly as terrifying as the story that I'm going to recount for you today in this 54th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the 1991 Sacramento hostage crisis. Sacramento is the capital of the state of California with a current population of just over half a million people, making it the sixth largest city in the state as well as the 35th largest city in the country. So many notable people hail from Sacramento, more than I could possibly take the time to name. Countless actors, actresses, entertainment icons, filmmakers, journalists, musicians, writers, politicians, scientists, and athletes from every sport. Baseball, basketball, NFL football, boxing, soccer, golf, martial arts, Olympians. And like many communities in California, it is beautiful and culturally diverse. However, it is the backdrop of today's dark tale. It sounds so cliche to say that Thursday, April 4th, 1991 was a typical day, unlike any other but there really are no other words to say it. It was truly one beautiful spring day in the state capital of California, Sacramento. The city is always bustling, and that's exactly how it was that afternoon at the Sacramento area Good Guys Electronics Store near the Florin Mall. The place was filled with 41 customers and employees when suddenly, four men donning ski masks and brandishing weapons appeared in the store. In the beginning, those who first noticed the masked men thought that they were intent on robbing the place. But what the customers and employees didn't know, that these four men were not there to rob it. As a matter of fact, they all weren't even men. Not yet, anyway. Three of them were teenagers, two of them juveniles. They had just left another location they attempted to rob, but that was a botched attempt. I was unable to ascertain the details of that robbery attempt. I just know that it was another nearby location in the south area of Sacramento. These four people were young Vietnamese refugees, and normally, you know that when I speak of killers or perpetrators of crimes, 
I typically refer to them by their last names. But you see, three of them were brothers. So to spare the confusion, we will talk about the four of them referring to them by their first names. They were brothers, 21-year-old Loi Nguyen, 19-year-old Pham Nguyen, 17-year-old Long Nguyen, and 17-year-old Gung Tran. And they were purportedly members of a loose-knit, violent youth street gang called the Oriental Boys. And like I said, they were not there to rob the good guy's store. They were there to make some sort of statement. And they had a motive as to why they were there. And I'll get to that a little bit later on. They were there to commandeer the store and to take everyone hostage. They were armed with three pistols and a shotgun. They gathered the customers and the staff into a group to maintain control. And this even included one employee named Al Bondar, who had just started his first day on the job that very afternoon. And one person who was actually a shoplifter attempting to leave the store. The masked gunman began shooting warning shots within the store. This would mark the beginning of what would become the largest civilian hostage rescue mission in United States history, and it remains so to this day. This particular part of Sacramento has been described as the rougher part of town on the south side with its fair share of crime, gang activity, robberies, carjackings, stuff like that. But what was going down inside the good guy's store that afternoon was unlike anything anyone could have ever anticipated. Usually, this particular good guy's store would not have been that busy on a weekday afternoon. You see, typically, the store ran sales ads on Fridays for the upcoming weekend, and those were always their busiest days. But in order to try something a little different, the store opted to run their sales ad for Thursday instead of Friday. It just so happened to be on that particular week. And that brought in a lot more shoppers. And the place was so much more busier than it normally would have been on a Thursday. It's just one of those twists of fates that you're going to see throughout the duration of this story. A customer walking in from the parking lot, an older woman named Henrietta Felion, who would play a role in this story a little bit later, recalled something that stood out to her as she made her way into the store that day. She happened to be off work early and decided to stop into the good guys to see if she could find a carrying case for a camera that she had received as a Christmas gift. A twist of fate, right? The little things that you think back that you may have done differently that would have taken you away from something tragic. Those things fascinate me. What if she hadn't been off work early that day? Or what if she had gotten off a little bit later? Or didn't even go into work at all? Or what if she received a sweater or a blouse instead of a camera for Christmas? she would have never ended up in the throes of this hostage situation. But she did. 
and as she pulled her car into the parking lot, she noticed another, a 1982 Toyota Corolla, pulling in at the same time. But what made her notice was the speed at which they had entered and drove in. They were going very fast for a parking lot. And as she parked and made her way into the store, Henrietta saw in the car that there were four young men sitting there, laughing and talking kind of loudly. And as she passed, she momentarily slowed down, took a quick glance, and then carried on, chalking them up to being loud, rambunctious teenagers. She had no clue that these four were there to be a little bit more than rambunctious kids. Nobody had any idea what was about to happen. So as Henrietta walked into the store towards the back where the camera accessories were kept, she soon began to hear some kind of a commotion come from the front of the store. So these four people casually walked into the store that was brimming with customers. They pulled their ski masks down over their faces as they did. And the employees were quick to take notice of what was about to unfold. Three of them were armed with handguns, one of them with a shotgun. It didn't take long for everyone to see that this was not going to be good. One of the gunmen raised his gun above his head and pointed it at the ceiling and yelled for everyone to get down. As he held the gun straight up, he pulled the trigger and the thing just clicked. He had left the safety on. This momentarily startled the gunman, so he ran to the front of the store, and within a matter of seconds, gunfire erupted. The three armed with handguns were randomly shooting them around the store, shooting at televisions, blowing apart glass counter display cases, anything that they wanted to shoot, while the one with the shotgun stood by the door. They began to order everyone to come to the front. One employee managed to make a 911 call before making his way to the front of the store along with the other hostages. And I'm not completely certain, but from what I could find, I believe the call was made and the receiver was put down without being hung up so he could follow the orders to get to the front of the store. That call came in to 911 dispatch at 1.35 p.m. The caller said in a whisper, there's somebody shooting a gun in our store. And in the 911 call, gunfire can be heard in the background of the audio recording. The caller quickly repeated, we got a gun, we got a gun, shooting at the good guy's store, the good guys. And this is when I believe he placed the phone down. It just so happened at that moment as the call came in, the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department Special Enforcement Detail was in the process of getting geared up for executing a planned drug raid that same afternoon. So with this shooting and possible robbery going on at the good guys, the drug raid was shelved and the special enforcement team was dispatched to the scene instead. Simultaneously, all off-duty team members were paged in order to arrive at the scene too. The special enforcement detail, along with the sheriff's department's critical incident negotiations team, prepared to get to the scene as soon as possible. 
Other local and state law enforcement agencies also joined in in assisting the situation of the good guys. Another customer named Lisa Joseph was at the good guy store when the hostage crisis commenced as well. She was there with her uncle and her cousin. She, like anyone else who survived that day, would be the first to tell you that you could not have asked for a more beautiful day in the city. The weather, the day, the season was perfect. She decided to spend the day with her uncle and her cousin. They had plans to go out to lunch and do some shopping at the mall. So as they were headed there, they were happening to pass by the good guys when Lisa's uncle said, oh, let's stop there. I want to do some shopping. Another twist of fate, dreamers, for certain. And I will have much more to tell you about Lisa, her uncle, and her cousin as the story unfolds. For Lisa, the whole thing, the gunman walking in, taking over the store, shooting at random things, it was all happening so fast around her. The three of them dropped to the ground and tried to stay huddled together. Oh, and you know what else? Lisa was five months pregnant at the time. So as she's crawling along on the ground, she's suddenly grabbed by the hair by one of the gunmen and shoved against the wall and told to stay there and not move. Some people tried running out the back door, but they were immediately confronted by the gunmen. They were told if they didn't get back in the store, that they would be shot. Henrietta ducked behind some large boxes that were on display in front of the will call window with another customer, attempting to hide, attempting to take cover from the gunfire. At this point, the gunmen closed the front doors. One of the good guy's employees named David Siegler was huddled in one of the aisles with several other customers. He wanted to try to make their way to the front door to try to get out of the store. But just as they emerged from hiding behind the aisle, they could see the one gunman standing near the front door. And just as they spotted him, they saw him rack his shotgun. And the sound of that terrified David. They all stopped moving towards the front door and headed into the car stereo audio room instead. They huddled in there and tried to stay out of the way of gunfire and hopefully out of the way of the gunman as well. One of the customers asked David if this kind of thing happens all the time. And he's trying to be as cool about this as possible. So he told him, oh yeah, this is like no big deal. There was just a carjacking in the parking lot the other day. Don't worry about it. It's just a robbery. Everyone's going to be fine. Robbers don't necessarily want to kill people, right? They have masks over their faces so nobody can identify them. There's no reason to kill anyone. Well, unfortunately, they're not robbers. They're hostage takers. It's just these customers and employees don't know it yet. Well, this little group huddled in there didn't get to stay in the car stereo audio room for very long, as when one of the gunmen was walking by the room, the entranceway to it is glass. As he passed the door, he did a double take 
and saw the group of them huddled on the ground in there. He stopped and took a few steps back, opened the glass door, pointed his handgun directly at David, and ordered everyone out of the audio room. One by one, they all got up and filed out of there, towards the front, where they were gathering everyone up in the store. At the same time, brand new employee Al was crouching down behind a counter, thinking that this was going to be a robbery. So he figured that they might ask for his wallet. So he decided to pull some money out of it and put it in his pocket and he stashed his wallet into a small cabinet, thinking that he'll just hand over the money if they ask for it. Everyone was eventually herded to the front. Everyone was sitting on the floor, nervously looking around, wondering what the heck was going on. But Al stayed back there behind the counter with another employee named John, and they would stay hidden there, at least for a little while. And remember, Henrietta and another customer are crouched behind some boxes on display near Will Call. But she suddenly spotted a pair of shoes walking up next to her. She glanced upwards and saw the gunman with a ski mask over his face. He ordered the two women to get up. Henrietta thought, for a moment, that the gunmen were going to let her and the other woman go because they started walking them towards the front of the store. But as soon as she saw all of the others sitting down on the ground near the front, it dawned on her that she wasn't going anywhere. Henrietta took a seat on the ground as well. Next to her were two young mothers, three children between them. One of the mothers was crying, on the brink of hysterics. A good guy's employee by the name of Sean McIntyre did what he could to comfort her. He was telling her that she was going to be okay. She isn't hurt, that this is going to be okay. In the meantime, Al, still hiding behind the counter with John, were watching things as best they could from their vantage point. They could not directly see the gunman or the front of the store, but they could see the reflection of what was transpiring in the screens of the computers that were on display nearby. Once the gunman thought everyone in the store was accounted for and up in the front, one of them began demanding to know who was in charge, who had the keys, who was the manager on duty, as the store manager had just left for the day. One employee raised his hand and he said he had the keys. So the gunman demanded that he lock the front door. It was at that point, Al quietly glanced over at John and John back at him. And they both knew in that moment that this wasn't a robbery. The storefront entranceway consists of two very large, heavy plate glass doors. There were no other windows in the store, and this would be an easy way to contain people in a hostage-type situation. This electronic store was very secure. But what this also meant is that the vantage point from the parking lot, you can see directly inside the store. And once the media caught wind of what was going down at the Sacramento Good Guys, the media not only descended upon the scene in force, 
they were able to broadcast exactly what was going on inside for the most part as they had a full frontal view right into those large plate glass doors as the events progressed the hostage takers lined them up at the front entrance in front of the glass doors and entranceway to be used as human shields and dreamers I remember when this event happened. I was home that day. This was on every single channel, and my parents had it on all afternoon as we watched this go on. I was 16 years old, and I hadn't seen anything like this before. And we could pretty clearly see everything that was going on through those glass doors. And I watched it all the way to the end. And if you go on YouTube, you'll be able to see some of the footage from that day. But go look after you finish this. I think I can paint a very vivid picture for you. So Lisa began to panic. She saw how the employee was locking them in, locking the two big glass doors with his keys from the bottom. She knew that they were trapped in there. Remember, she's with her uncle and her cousin, and she's pregnant. She began to think that they were going to die that day. Her, her family, and her unborn baby. But the gunmen, they wanted 911 called. One of them ordered one of the hostages to pick up the phone in the store and dial. The gunmen said they wanted the police there. And they wanted to speak to the president. The president, right? Of the United States. Of all people. That would be President Bush number one at the time. These guys want the president on the line to make the demands for a letter signed by him to give them free passage out of the country. I know we know these guys are young, but the hostages really didn't know that. They probably had no idea what they were doing. And this demand to talk to the president, along with the first guy accidentally leaving the safety on his gun, I think the hostages are kind of getting an inkling that these are very inexperienced young men who have no clue as to what they want or what they're here for. The hostage picked up the phone and made the call but the gunman snatched it right out of his hand. He told the operator that they were in control of the good guy's store and they wanted the police there on the scene and the sheriff's department and they wanted the president on the phone. And when all of those things happen, they would make their demands. And Lisa is sitting there thinking to herself, President Bush isn't going to take the time to call these jerks at the good guy's. But those were their demands. They had control of the store. And they wanted to talk to someone about what their demands would be. Meanwhile, the special enforcement detail obtained the floor plans of the building that housed the good guy's store. Copies were made and distributed amongst the team members. They were informed that there was only one entrance to the store that was not alarmed the freight entrance that was located in the rear area of the store. 
the only other option to gaining entry into the hostage zone would be via a fabric store located on the north side of the building. So the special enforcement detail team gained entry into that fabric store, slowly and quietly moving into tactical positions. At some points, the hostage takers did hear some kind of movement made by the police. Despite the fact that the hostage takers kept yelling to stay away from the door, things that the police could hear coming from inside the good guys. The team moving into the hostage zone through that fabric store is called the entry team. One of them removed a ceiling panel located in the hallway between the two buildings and using a pole mounted mirror was able to observe the hostage takers. He watched them as one of them was ordering the hostages to place some large boxes against the back door to obstruct the entry. Once they were satisfied that the door was barricaded, that back area was cleared out by the hostages and the hostage takers. A fisheye camera was installed by the entry team, but unfortunately, the effectiveness of its use was limited because of the layout of the store. It could only show a portion of the store's showroom near the door. Also by this time, the entry team could see that the hostages had been gathered up all together in a group and they were lined up just inside the store's front entrance. Some of them were standing, and some were kneeling. And then the phone rang. It was the hostage negotiator. The gunman who answered the call began frantically shouting out demands. And for the next two hours, the negotiator attempted to end this hostage incident peacefully by negotiating with the gunman on the phone. But this wasn't going to end that easily. The hostage taker told the negotiator that they had some demands and that they needed to listen carefully or that they were going to start killing people one by one and throwing them out the front door as a show of how serious they are. And this was their list of demands. One million dollars and that changed from 1 million to 3 million to 1 million over time. Bulletproof vests or flak jackets. 1,000 year old ginseng roots to make tea. And a 50 troop military helicopter so they could transport everyone inside the store to Thailand after they would make a stop in Alaska to refuel. However, as the afternoon wore on, their demands did not seem very clear or very consistent. And it became more and more evident that these young men had no idea what they were doing. But the singular demand that remained the most consistent was the demand for four bulletproof vests. They actually wanted full body armor, as they described it on the phone, like Robocop, full ankle to neck body armor, which... I'm not even sure is a thing. Does any facet of law enforcement use full body armor? The military? The space force maybe? I have no idea, but it's just not possible at this point. The police do have access to bulletproof vests as they would attempt to use those as a bargaining tool during the negotiations. They obtained those vests, but they wanted something in return. They wanted at least a handful of hostages released in exchange for one vest. 
The hostage takers would agree to that, but they had another stipulation. The person who would drop the vest in front of the store needed to do so with nothing on except for underwear, completely stripped down so it would be clear that the person wasn't carrying anything else other than the vest. When they were asked by the negotiator how much money they wanted, they first said one million, but another one of the gunmen said, no, no, tell them four million. And it just became more and more apparent that these young men, with all of these people's lives in their hands, seated on the floor, held at gunpoint, had no clue what they wanted. They had no clear plan. They told everyone there that they came here to die or to take everyone with them on that helicopter. And something else was compounding the stressfulness of the situation for the gunmen, the children. They were crying. Obviously, they were scared. And it was aggravating the gunmen to no end to have to listen to this crying. And that's scary because you're probably wanting so badly to try and quiet these kids down because you're in fear for their lives. In any moment, one of these gunmen could just put a bullet right into these kids to stop the crying. They threatened the mothers of the children at one point that they better shut their kids up. The hostages were pretty quick to sum up the volatility of the hostage takers. The oldest one, Loy, he seemed to be the one in charge, but it was apparent that Long, the 17-year-old youngest brother, was the most problematic. He was the one who appeared to be the most dangerous, the most unhinged. He kept saying he wanted to see blood. It's time that they shot somebody. He wanted to shoot somebody immediately. And he seemingly enjoyed the panic that he was causing with the hostages. Meanwhile, the police set up their command center across the street from the good guy's store. And like I said, the media had descended upon the scene of this hostage crisis. I told you, they could get a very clear view of the front of the store entrance. This was the only clear way in or out. And the media began showing coverage of the store and the special enforcement detail, along with the SWAT team approaching the building. Things that law enforcement did not want shown on TV. Remember, this is a good guy's electronics store. There are televisions all over the place broadcasting local programming. And suddenly, the good guys is breaking news. Law enforcement certainly do not want their tactical locations being revealed. So the sheriff in charge of the situation had to get his media relations guys on top of the situation so his men's locations and positions would not be compromised. All the media were rounded up and given a designated place to film from, where they had a good view of the storefront. They were instructed to keep tactical positions confidential and to not air footage of the SWAT team, to not show people taking positions on rooftops, or to not show how many officers surrounding the store were out in front. Early on, the sheriff told his men that they were not going to storm this store until he says it's okay. He's obviously very, very concerned for the safety of the lives of those innocent hostages inside. His plan was to negotiate for as long as he possibly could, 
to do everything he could in his power to make sure that those hostages left that building alive. There is some audio recording available on YouTube of the phone calls between the negotiator and the gunman. At one point, they had a hostage speaking for them, saying, He says if he doesn't get the chopper and the jackets, he'll kill everyone in here. He can't wait. He's got a gun to my heart. The hostage relays to the gunman what the negotiator is saying to him. Okay, take it easy, you guys. I'm trying. I'm getting them there. Give me a second. But the problem was, of course, the things that the gunman wanted, there was no way that they could be provided with. The large sums of money, the helicopter, the 1,000-year-old ginseng roots. It just wasn't going to happen. And as time is passing, the children are still crying, and the gunmen are obviously getting more and more agitated with each passing minute. The children are asking their moms, why does this man have a gun? Why is he pointing a gun at us? So what the hostage takers decided to do was negotiate for the children to leave. They were most adamant about the bulletproof vests. They were going back and forth between asking for vests and asking for full body armor, and they reiterated that the person making the drop needs to be down to his underwear. Obviously, the gunman didn't want any surprises or any tricks pulled by law enforcement. But it's also been surmised that they wanted to embarrass the police or even demonstrate the kinds of control they had over the situation. In my opinion, though, these gunmen who are holding these poor people hostage don't really seem sophisticated enough to be thinking that much about it. I just think they wanted to make sure no one came to the door armed. And so, the sheriff's department complied with the demand. One of their deputies got down to his underwear and a pair of sunglasses, showed himself through the glass front doors to the gunman, did a little spin to prove that he was unarmed, and he made the drop of one bulletproof vest in front of the locked door. Inside, one of the hostage takers decided that he was going to send one of the hostages that was the mother of two of the children out there to get the vest. He told her that if she tried anything stupid, if she tried to run or make any kind of funny move, he would kill her kids. So the door was unlocked and she stepped outside, picked up the vest and came back in. And all of this was caught on video by the media. The mother wanted to leave, but the gunmen were not going to let her leave just yet. First, they didn't feel like that the vest that they got was what they had asked for. They wanted full body armor, foot to neck. But they told him that that's just something that they don't actually have. Next, they weren't convinced that it was a real bulletproof vest. They wanted to test it first to make sure it was real. And only then they would let some of the hostages go. It looked like an older style bulletproof vest, something from a couple of decades back or even further. 
One of the men holding the vest up looked at it and said to the group of hostages sitting there on the floor that someone was going to have to put on this vest so he could test it. The hostages again became swept with panic and fear, suggested that he just lay it down on the ground and shoot it, and if it's real, it will work and he will see. So he put the vest down on the ground and aimed a fire at it. And just in that moment, the one in charge, the one on the phone, Loy, he pointed his gun at the ground. But the youngest brother, Long, the one that seemed more angry and violent, stepped in and wanted to shoot the vest himself, telling his brother that he always gets to shoot, that he wants to shoot it. But the older brother told him to get back, that he was going to shoot it. And the hostages are looking at each other thinking, what does he mean that he's always the one that gets to shoot? And what in the world is he always shooting at? This small conflict between Loy and Lung really shook the hostages to the core. Finally, Loy got his gun, sending one bullet into the vest as it lay on the ground. The hostages flinched as they felt the vibration of the impact on the floor beneath them. Loy picked up the vest, inspected it, and it appeared that he was pleased that it was authentic. He proceeded to put on the vest, and from the look on his face, everyone could tell that this added another level of power that he had felt in that moment he put it on. From outside, law enforcement and the media could hear the gunshot that was fired when the vest was tested. And it was time for Lloyd to hold up his end of the bargain and send out the hostages that he promised. And he did. Soon, the mother who had momentarily stepped outside to pick up the vest emerged once again from behind the glass doors of the store one child walking next to her, holding her hand, and her baby in her other arm. They were quickly ushered away from the scene to safety. So the negotiations were continuing, and the one who was doing the majority of the talking on the phone with the police negotiators was the eldest of the group, the eldest of the brothers, Loy. At certain points, it seemed like he was willing to try to work out a deal, even going so far as to say that he would agree to surrender to police, but they wanted to keep their bulletproof vests and their weapons while they were in custody. And you know and I know that that's just not going to happen. He was interrupted by one of the other hostage takers, and they began discussing the situation amongst themselves. This was already getting on a couple hours into the ordeal. Law enforcement began to think that perhaps these young men were going to be willing to reach a settlement with the police. Giving them a bulletproof vest and them giving up one hostage with their two children was the start of building a trusting relationship between the two. But just when things looked like they might reach a place of agreement, the phone went dead. The hostage negotiator attempted to call the store, but the first time, the line was busy. The second time, one of the hostage takers picked up the phone and identified himself as number one and told everyone that he was now in control of what was going on. And from then on, the situation between them and law enforcement 
rapidly crumbled. Shots again could be heard being fired from inside as the gunman took aim at some of the store security cameras. The hostage takers were becoming increasingly agitated at the pace at which their demands were being met. After all this time that had passed, all that they were able to get from law enforcement was that one bulletproof vest. Remember, they wanted four sets of full body armor. They wanted more weapons, a 50-seat military helicopter, 1,000-year-old ginseng roots, and they vacillated between one and three million dollars. And as the hours wore on, they wanted pizza and Chinese food delivered as well. As the four of them were trying to decide what they were going to do next, one of the young men says, well, how about we just shoot one of them and throw them outside and let them know that we mean business? One of them, on the phone again with the negotiator, said that they were going to have to start shooting. The negotiator asks him why, and he simply said, because you don't do what I say. We are going to shoot all the people dead right now. And the negotiator said, but I'm not going to let you. I don't want you to. The gunman on the phone said, we figure everything out, okay? We figure it out. We have to die at least. The negotiator replied, you don't have to die. The gunman retorted, no, I don't care. Okay, we want to die. And the negotiator asked, why? And he answered, because we feel like it. It was very apparent to the negotiators that these four young men were very, very angry. And as time wore on, they were becoming more and more desperate. And it is not easy to negotiate with anyone in that state of mind. And law enforcement were stuck between a rock and a hard place. They want to get these innocent hostages out safely and unharmed. But they simply cannot give the hostage takers the things that they are demanding. It's not possible. So, what are you to do? To complicate things even more, family members began showing up at the scene as well. And as you can imagine, they are in hysterics. So law enforcement gathered the family into a secured room in the basement of the mall. They brought in the police department's chaplain and did everything that they could to keep the family members calm and gave them frequent, up-to-the-minute briefings. But, as time continued to pass, the negotiations were going nowhere, and the desperation of the hostage-takers is growing exponentially. They figured they will have to do something to get the police to give them what they are asking for, and every time they demand that the police provide what they are asking for in a certain time frame, that time frame passes, and nothing happens, and it becomes more and more intense inside that store. And eventually the men feel like they need to begin to ratchet up their threats. So they demand that the hostages stand up. They get to their feet and they look around at one another, trying to figure out what's going to happen to them next. One of the gunmen told them that he's had enough, that law enforcement wants to play games, then they're going to play games too. So as the hostages are standing there before them, one of the hostage takers pointed his gun at them and told them that he had a game. It was a nursery rhyme. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And he chanted this as he pointed a gun at a person's head. Eeny. At a person's heart. 
Meanie. At the next person's head. Mighty. In the next person's heart. Mo. And as this game was going on, another gunman was kind of patrolling the store just to make sure everything was secure. And remember, Al and his co-worker John are still hiding behind that sales counter in the back of the store, crouched down. And just as the gunman was walking by, he happened to notice John's foot kind of sticking out from behind the counter. They grabbed him, and Al scurried around to the side of the counter to keep hidden from their view. But they got John, infuriated that he had been hiding from them all this time. Loy was still on the phone with the negotiator, and he yelled at his two brothers to bring that guy up to the front. They sat him down with the rest of the hostages, who were by now sitting back down again, and all of them had their guns trained on John. He told the negotiator over the phone that they just found another hostage hiding, and he is going to be the first one to die if their demands are not met. Loy, however, suddenly realizes that there might be more hiding, so he ordered his brothers to go back and check one more time to make sure. And when they do, they discover Al hiding back there too. Still on the phone, Loy told the negotiator that they found another guy hiding from them, Al, and he is going to be the first one to die. And he reiterated their demands, except this time, they asked for a body bag. And they toyed with Al as well, as one of them put their gun to his head and pulled the trigger, and it would just click. As they are telling him to get ready to die, Al is just sitting there, trying to maintain his composure. He's resigned himself to not show these gunmen his fear, by just continuing to tell himself that dying is not a threat. Dying is sending him to a better place. He was at peace with it. He just didn't want to allow these four young men to have that over him. And while all of this was going on, and as Henrietta was just sitting there, watching all of this go on around her, she began to think about her family. They didn't know where she was at. Remember, this was a stop on the way home from getting off of work early that day. The fear was starting to get to her. She was sitting there being held hostage in the store, she was uncertain as to whether or not she would be able to see her family again. And she was overwhelmed with the sadness of not being able to say goodbye to them if she doesn't make this out alive. It seems apparent that she is one of the older individuals being held in that good guy's store. Maybe that will play into her favor. Maybe not. These young men are very angry and very unpredictable. And I'm certain she isn't alone in those thoughts of her family and loved ones. We've heard people recount similar feelings of sadness and longing. When death seems imminent, people think about their children, their parents. 
However, in the next moment, Henrietta felt her emotions creeping in and taking over, but she forced herself to stop having those dreadful thoughts. She was acutely aware that these young men holding them hostage were razor-focused on the anomalies in the group. The crying children, the store employees, the people who tried to stay hidden. They were picking and choosing those who stood out, those who attracted their attention. And she was afraid that if she began to become upset, or if she cried, that she would become the object of their focus that she would be the one that they would want to shoot to make an example out of if she were to become overly emotional. She thought that maybe if she kept her head down, perhaps if she avoided eye contact, didn't draw their attention towards her, that she could just fade into the background. But at the same time, when she looked down, she was wearing a very, very bright pink outfit like really bright and the fear overcame her again that she must be standing out like a sore thumb with this unfortunate wardrobe choice and the negotiations dragged on the hostages were beginning to wonder they're beginning to think that this is not going well these four young men are not getting what they're asking for and it was feeling like their time was running out as the hostage takers are losing their patience with every passing minute. As I mentioned a moment ago, they're unpredictable. They were easily aggravated. And everyone that was being held hostage by these men were literally paralyzed with fear. No one was going to be a hero. No one was going to make an attempt to overpower these gunmen, despite the fact that there were 41 hostages and only four of them. Their fear ran deep, and the hours dragged on. They were getting fatigued, their bodies were cramping, and not to mention the psychological torture these hostage takers were inflicting upon these people. The tension was so high, the anxiety, I cannot even imagine how much stress everyone was feeling in that store. And then there came a point where Lisa simply could not take the anxiety anymore. Remember Lisa Dreamers? She happened into the good guy store with her cousin and her uncle and her unborn child nearly five months along. Well, she reached her breaking point. She began having these terrible cramps and the pain was too much to bear. Her cousin seated next to her tried to whisper to her to calm down, calm down. She told her that she was panicking, just be calm. Everything was gonna be okay, that they were gonna be okay. So when it came time that the hostage takers announced that they were going to begin allowing them to use the restroom one at a time, Lisa told her cousin that she needed to go. She had to go and she'd be right back. But her cousin told her, no, 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 don't go. You are not going. Her cousin grabbed onto her 
and told her that she was not leaving her there. She did not want to die alone and that she might not come back and that they might kill her back there in the bathroom. What if they killed her back there? Just don't go. But Lisa told her that she had to go. She had to. She had those awful cramps. She was shaking. She was sweating. Her whole body was reacting to whatever in the world was going on. It felt like she was in the process of dying. She had to go to the restroom. So when one of the gunmen asked her if she wanted to go, she said yes. It was clear to them that she was in some sort of distress. She got up and kind of put her head down and was escorted at gunpoint by one of the four. Dreamers, this is going to be difficult to listen to. But Lisa has told her story. And it's a story of surviving one of the worst moments you could ever imagine in your life. One of the scariest moments. She went into the restroom with the gunman. He is not allowing her to go by herself. He is not allowing her to be in the stall by herself. He's in there with her, with a gun pointed at her head as she had seated on that toilet. She had this tremendous pain in her abdomen. She was doing everything she could to hold herself together, trying to think of what she might say to him if he asks what's going on. Maybe she could tell him that she's constipated. But she's seeing and feeling all of this blood coming from her body. And she was looking at the gunman. And she's looking down the barrel of his gun. And he's looking at her, kind of puzzled. And he asked her if she was okay. And she said, yeah, yeah. She was beginning to feel better. She just had to sit there. And she just had to let go. She had to let go of all of that pain in the face of all of this. As she miscarried her baby, and then she cleaned herself up as best she could and flushed. And then as casually as possible, she rejoined the rest of the hostages. A few more people took the opportunity to go to the bathroom after Lisa. Each one of them was escorted at gunpoint. When Loy asked if anyone needed to go, Al, one of those two employees that had been discovered hiding behind the back counter said that he needed to go. But he had been kind of the focal point of the gunman ever since they found him hiding. He was going to be the one who was going to be killed first as an example. So when he stood up and said that he needed to go to the restroom, he was told no. You are not going to go to the bathroom. You are going to die. But Al had had enough. I sense that there was a part of him that just felt like these guys were young, that they were looking for someone to listen to them, that they were looking to be powerful. But the only thing that empowered them were those guns and holding these hostages. So much time had passed. Al was either over the fear or tired of the fear. They kept telling him that they were going to kill him, yet there he still was, 
and he needed to use the restroom. So he walked away. All guns pointed at him, despite being ordered not to go. Two of the four hostage takers followed him to the bathroom. But when Al was finished, instead of taking him back up to the front with the rest of the hostages, they took him into the break room and began bickering between the two of them who was going to get to kill him. They finally got so frustrated that one of them aimed his gun at the snack machine in the break room and shattered the glass, and again at the drink machine. Everyone up front could hear the gunshots. Loy yelled back there, wondering what was going on. The two gunmen began loading up a couple of boxes with snacks and drinks, and while they were busy doing that, Al decided that he needed to do something different to take the focus of these men off of him. He decided to take off his tie and his name badge, and when they all came back up to the front, he sat down in a different place, hoping that these subtle differences would take their attention away from him. There reached a point, as it was getting close to sunset, where the hostage takers decided that they wanted to allow the three remaining children in the store to leave, but they did not want to allow them to leave with their moms. One of the mothers asked if she could be the one to take the children out of the store, but Long said, no, no, let the old lady take them out, meaning Henrietta. She wasn't sure at first, but when she looked around, it appeared that she was the one that they were talking about. He told her to get up, and she did. And in trying to gather the kids by their hands, one of them, only four years old, did not want to leave her mom. But mom convinced her that it was okay to go with Henrietta. So she took her by the hand and took the hand of the littlest one and then the oldest, a six-year-old, followed alongside and the four of them headed towards the entrance. The store employee with the keys unlocked the glass door and let them out. And all of this was captured on actual news footage. You can see Henrietta in her bright pink outfit walking out of the good guys with the three little children in tow and off to the right where law enforcement was waiting. It was still in the back of Henrietta's mind that she might not be in the clear yet. As she walked away, they could shoot her in the back and make her the example. But no, she made it safely away with those three children. And then Long, the youngest of the three brothers, snapped. He was done. He was tired, frustrated, angry, irritated. The demands were not being met, and he made it clear from the beginning that he was anxious to shoot people. His oldest brother, Loy, had been on the phone the most. He, at many points throughout the afternoon and into the evening, appeared to be willing to try and negotiate something, but not long. He wanted the demands met exactly to their specifications. So what they decided to do next was to tie everyone up 
and to tie everyone to someone else in about groups of four. They tethered them together with a variety of electrical cords and speaker wires that were plentiful around the store. And the hostages were intricately tied together in such a way that everyone's arm was attached to someone else's leg. So you really can't move or run without causing the other person to fall or inhibit your own attempt at movement. And then the gunmen lined them up in the storefront. And all of this being captured by the media, the hostages lined up in front of the large glass doors. The gunmen were certain that if law enforcement was going to try to make an attempt to gain entry into the store, that they were going to have to come through the back door. But you know and I know that is not where the SWAT team is stacked up to gain entry. But we will get to that. So from what I understand in my research, there was a prank call late in the afternoon, a customer pretending to be police. They had one of the store employees on the phone for about 15 minutes. To what end? I have no idea. But once Long realized that this wasn't serious, he became enraged. He grabbed the phone and threw it down and said, You want to play games? Okay, we can play games. He divided the group of hostages in half, 20 or so to the left and 20 or so to the right. And he told them that they were going to play heads or tails. He was going to flip a coin. Heads, the 20 on the right, are going to die. Tails, the 20 to the left, are going to die. He flipped the coin, and the hostages began crying and panicking. Everyone is watching this coin. It fell to the ground, and it rolled, and it was spinning. And Long picked it up and said, That doesn't count. And he began to make a big production out of the coin game. He flipped it several times. It landed, and it didn't count. He was messing with them. He was getting into their heads. He eventually said that he was going to pick one person from the side that the coin lands on to shoot and send out as the example which he did. Long flipped his coin and grabbed a hostage named Stephen McIntyre. He just happened to be the closest guy to him in the moment. Sean was a good guy's employee, but he wasn't actually on the clock when this hostage situation began. He stopped in to purchase a part for a car stereo that he was installing. Wrong place, wrong time. Another twist of fate, once again. Lloyd decided that he did want to shoot Sean, but not fatally. His plan was to shoot him in the leg and send him out, to show law enforcement that they were serious, and that they wanted him to go to the media and tell them their demands on TV, and they wanted to watch it from inside the store. He told Sean, We shoot you in the leg, and you get to go. That's a fair deal, right? So Sean turned and faced one of the gunmen, but he told him to turn around. The gunman didn't even want to look him in the face. 
as he pointed his gun at his leg. But two of the other gunmen wanted him to be shot in the head. They egged him on to shoot him in the head. But Loy insisted it had to be in the leg so that their demands could be heard on TV and that they were serious about what they were doing. And on a count of three, they fired one shot into Sean's leg. And all of this was captured on live TV. You can hear the gunshot. You can see Sean drop to the ground in front of the large glass door. And you can see the other hostages around him looking down at him. By this time, it was nightfall. And you can see Sean crawl out the door. And he's got this injured leg out in front of him. And he hurried in the same direction where the first mom had left hours earlier with her two young children where Henrietta had left with those three children. Dreamers, it is so painful to watch him finally make his way to his feet and limp as fast as he could towards law enforcement. The hostages were beginning to think that this might possibly come to an end soon. They're thinking that law enforcement has got to have this plan to come into the building and take control of the situation now that they've shot someone and sent them out but that really wasn't happening. And just as the hostage takers were going impatient again, Sean appeared on the news. Police were hoping that they would move together away from the glass doors and over towards where the TVs were so the hostages would be out of the way of the large front door, but that didn't happen. They stayed put while they listened to Sean on TV. He said, There are four gunmen in the good guys holding 40 people hostage. They want three bulletproof jackets, a helicopter, and firearms. They already shot me. That's all I have to say. This angered the gunmen. This wasn't everything that they had asked for. And this is hours and hours into this ordeal. By this time, they were expecting to be wearing full body armor with anywhere between $1 million and $3 million with them, a military-style helicopter waiting for them in the parking lot with the capacity to carry all of them and the hostages. They wanted that letter from President Bush granting them free pass out of the country. And oh, their 1,000-year-old ginseng root to brew their tea. Yeah, none of this is happening. And then, in the storefront, where the media had their cameras trained. One of the hostages can be seen suddenly falling face forward onto the ground, and the people tied to him are all jerked around as well. He began to convulse and to shake. He was a diabetic, and he was going into shock. And everyone is looking at him, wondering what is happening. Long approached the man, and pointed his gun at him and said, Well, we've got our next volunteer. One of the good guy's employees was on the phone with the hostage negotiator, and he explained to them that an older man just fell down, and he seems to be having some kind of episode or attack. One of the gunmen got on the phone and told them that they had this old man, and he's having some kind of an attack. Bring them a bulletproof vest, or he's going to start shooting people one at a time. 
On the actual audio recording of the negotiations, the gunman said, Guess I'm gonna run out now. I'll shoot. I'll let you see. I'll let you hear the sound of it too. The negotiator told him that he didn't want him to shoot anyone else. And the gunman yelled, Now, I really mean it. I've had enough of this. I can't wait anymore. The negotiator told him that they were trying to bring another bulletproof vest now. And the gunman is making another count to three. He wanted to see a bulletproof vest brought to the front door of the store and the negotiator is telling him, it's coming, it's coming. He tried to get the man who fell over to speak to the negotiator on the phone, but he was clearly passed out. His eyes rolled back. He was out. And this made the gunman even more angry. He told the negotiator that he was going to shoot this man who was passed out and he did his three count again and on the audio recording of the phone call you can clearly hear the gunshot being fired and he said to the negotiator i just break his leg right there now or else the next bullet is going into his head when this man passed out and in shock was shot his leg jerked up and fell to the ground again and he continued to lay there. And police, they desperately wanted to get him out of there so they could provide him with medical treatment. The officer in charge of the scene decided that this needed to come to an end. They just could not stand by any longer and wait for these men to continue to shoot people. They needed to move in. They needed to implement their plan. There were two snipers perched out front with two different vantage points, two different angles trained on the front doors. The team was finally given the green light to fire as soon as they had a clear shot at any one of their four targets. At the same time, seven SWAT team members were stacked just outside the rear entrance of the good guys from inside the hallway that had been between the fabric store. As soon as the sniper shot would be fired, they would storm the store. But before all of this was to happen, law enforcement was going to deliver a second bulletproof vest, which they did. They dropped one by the front door. This, they were hoping, would give the sniper a clear shot at one of the gunmen. It was clear to the SWAT team that they were going to enter into the store from this back room and there was going to be gunfire and it was going to be chaos and they were going to have to do anything they could to make sure that they knew who their targets were but they were certain a gun battle was imminent the sniper shot would be their signal to move in and just as soon it was about to appear to the hostages that the gunmen were going to choose another person to shoot, someone noticed a bulletproof vest lying on the ground outside. One of the hostage takers wanted to go out there to pick it up, but another one stopped him and told him that if he was going to do that, he was going to get shot. They needed to send one of the hostages out to get it. 
and this time they chose Lisa's cousin to be the one to retrieve the vest. She had family there in the store. If she tried to run, if she tried any trickery, they told her that they would kill her family. They tied her hands behind her back with a long speaker wire so she would remain tethered to the inside of the store. And the two of them had guns pointed at Lisa's head and her uncle's back. One of the hostage takers led her to the front door and the employee with the keys opened the door once again. And again, all of this is being broadcasted on live TV. I was watching it. It was on every single channel that night. I had been glued to the TV all day. I watched that poor girl step outside and suddenly that glass door as it was opened shattered into a million pieces all over the ground. You could hear it shatter. But, oh my goodness, streamers, that sniper bullet that shattered that glass missed its target. The direct hit to the head of the hostage taker missed as the glass door was swinging shut just enough and in such a way that it caused the bullet to deflect only to graze the gunman. Lisa's cousin crouched down onto the ground in front of the store after the door shattered and remained there for what seemed like forever. Then suddenly, in full view of the media, the hostage takers began going across the front of the store where the hostages were on the ground, tied together, and just went down the line of them, shooting at all of them. It is some of the most terrifying and chilling pieces of video I've ever seen. And I hadn't even known it at the time that it was happening. I didn't know until later that we were watching these men firing into those hostages. The team in the back room immediately made entry into the store while simultaneously stun grenades were tossed into the front of the store in order to lead the hostage takers to believe that they were storming the front. The employee who had the keys can be seen stumbling through the broken glass and outside to safety. Lisa's cousin finally began to move away from the storefront towards the right to waiting law enforcement. You can see her get up and you can see her try to run. You can see her hands are still bound behind her back. As she reached an officer and as they began to hurry away, her tether went tight and she was yanked to the ground. The officer helped her up and pulled at the speaker wire until it came loose and she made her way to safety. The entry team came into the store through the back entrance. It had been barricaded earlier by the hostage takers, but they pushed through it in a matter of seconds. But now, they were faced with a hundred feet of showroom space, shelves, and aisles. But they were much, much more heavily armed than the hostage takers, of course. Two of them cleared the west side of the store. Two of them cleared the east two of them went up the middle and one took a rear guard position. As they moved forward towards the front of the store, 
the hostage takers immediately opened fire on the entry team, as well as the hostages that were still there on the ground. In a very odd moment, one of the entry team members happened to be standing on top of that speaker wire that Lisa's cousin had been tethered to. And it was in that moment that he stepped on it that that wire was yanked by the officer outside trying to help her get to safety. This caused his feet to fly out from under him, causing him to quickly fall backwards. Just as one of the hostage takers had fired his shotgun towards that area where he'd been standing, the other team member suddenly thought that he had been struck in the face or the upper body by a shotgun blast. But he wasn't. He wasn't hit. And it's quite possible he may have been. If it hadn't been for that fateful moment when that speaker wire was yanked from so many feet away and outside the front of the store. Another twist of fate. So just as he was getting back up to his feet, the two team members covering the east side of the store engaged the suspect with the shotgun. He got off one more shotgun blast in their direction before he was taken out by the entry team. That was the youngest of the group, 17-year-old Kung Tran, the only one that wasn't a brother. And pretty much simultaneously, the entry team shot and killed 17-year-old Long and 19-year-old Pham. Loy, however, wasn't ready to give up just yet. He was attempting to tell the entry team that he was one of the hostages but there's a couple of things about that. One is he's wearing the bulletproof vest that was delivered earlier in the day. And two, all of the hostages around there were screaming that he's a liar, he's a liar, he's one of them. And with that, he was detained, placed under arrest, and taken to the hospital for medical treatment for his wounds and he would be the lone survivor of the four men that day who held those 41 people hostage for eight and a half hours. Fourteen hostages were shot by the gunmen. Three of them died, including store employees, 28-year-old Chris Edward Shone and 37-year-old John Lee Fritz, and customer, also 28 years old, Fernando Gutierrez, Lisa's uncle. John Fritz was the one who had been hiding with Al in the back of the store behind that counter for the better part of the beginning of the siege. And as the hostages were collecting themselves and looking around, they could see the injured and the dead lying on the floor. Medical personnel were going around and placing tags on them. Some of them said injured critical, Others said deceased, and the SWAT team members, the entry team, they were standing there looking at everything in their full tactical gear, their guns in their hands, and a couple of them began to break down into tears. Many lives were saved, but the lives that were lost was a tremendous failure. In 1995, 
Loy Wang stood trial on 51 counts ranging from kidnapping, attempted murder, and first-degree murder. Despite the fact that it was not he who shot any of the hostages, it was his younger brother, Long, and he was facing the possibility of the death penalty. I believe I've said it before, as the law is written, even though he did not do any of the actual killing, he still can be held accountable for the murders by virtue of taking part in the commission of the crime. The defense tried to portray him as misguided and misunderstood. They argued that he tried repeatedly to work out a negotiation to the end of the siege, but it was his brothers that refused to negotiate and drove the situation to a violent end. The jury deliberated for two hours and found Loy guilty on all counts. He would go on to be sentenced to 41 consecutive life sentences. He is still in prison today, only 48 years old, and he has got a long way to go yet. And from what I read, it seems Lisa and her cousin, in the end, were at odds as how they felt about Loy's role in the hostage crisis. Her cousin, Veronica Gutierrez, daughter of the deceased hostage Fernando Gutierrez, had expressed her desire to see Loy sentenced to death. That her family had been through so much and she just wanted him to die. But Lisa felt as though Lloyd tried to see this to a peaceful end. That he tried to negotiate with police. But they could not reach a solution. To her, he ended up losing his place as the oldest, the one in charge. And he ended up having to give up. She's even said that his brothers threatened him. That he was almost one of them now. Now, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that, but she was there. I wasn't. So, it really isn't for me to say. And this brings us to the big question, why? Why did these four young people walk into that good guys on April 4th, 1991 and destroy the lives of so many innocent people? Well, they apparently told the hostages that they were there on a suicide mission. Their lives were hopeless. They were ripped from their country. They were disgruntled with the American life that they were forced to live. They felt the American school system was flawed. They had difficulties learning how to speak English, how to read, how to write in English. This inhibited them from being able to succeed. They couldn't find jobs. They wouldn't be able to join the United States military. They wanted that helicopter to take them to Thailand so that they could help wage war against the communist Vietnamese government. And if they weren't going to get it, they were basically prepared to die there in the good guys. And they were going to take all of the hostages with them. It seemed like they all had two sides to them, though. The Wang brothers... They were respectful to their father, according to an interview he gave with the Los Angeles Times. They listened to him, so he thought. But when they were not home, when they were with their friends, they saw a different side of the three brothers. They were never really able to adapt to life in the United States. 
they all had troubled experiences in school. In the month before the hostage siege, Long and Gung, the two 17-year-olds, they had just been expelled from school after they were busted trying to set fire to the school. And they had previously been arrested together in another criminal case, and they were actually due in court for it on April 5th, the day after the hostage crisis. It's said that no one ever thought that their violence would boil over the way that it did in the good guy's store. But I'm not sure I buy that either. I mean, they just tried to burn down their school. That's kind of a huge red flag of an intent to do a great deal of damage and possibly a great deal of harm to innocent lives. Is that really that far of a cry from hostage taking and murder? Maybe, but it certainly is an escalation. And they were affiliated with the violent street gang too. But that's also been disputed by those who have a better understanding of the situation Vietnamese refugees like them and their families face. Their teachers and relatives have said that they do not know or suspect any kind of gang activity on the part of the Wing brothers. But the one thing that they all had in common is that they were all failures in school. And for Asian immigrants to the United States, academic success is a way of overcoming any other difficulties that they might face in trying to acclimate to a new society in a foreign country. It's one way of compensating for that in a sense. So if academic success isn't achieved, then feelings of hopelessness begin to take over. Well, I don't want to sit here and make excuses for these guys. My mom is an immigrant from Vietnam. And over the years, so many of her family have made their way to the United States one way or another. And the United States has been very, very good to all of them. They've worked hard. They've built their lives. They've raised their kids. So these four young men who want to poo-poo on America really bothers me because I just don't think they saw the opportunities that they had before them. And with that, I will bring this 54th episode of California Dreaming to a close. I'd love to know if any of you listening watched this hostage crisis unfold on TV like I did, or if it's something you've never heard of before. Either way, please come join me on the discussion page on Facebook and we could talk about it. Like the page and join the group. You can follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And if you should so be inclined, if you listen on Apple Podcasts and you like the show, I would love it if you would leave a review there. Every little bit helps the show grow and to make it more visible. California Dreaming has also created a Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to a number of bonus episodes and your contributions all help to the ongoing cost of producing this show. And we announced earlier today on social media that for the month of July, all new and current Patreon supporters will be entered into a raffle for a prize. So make sure you visit the California Dreaming Patreon page 
You can find the link in the show notes. I cannot thank you enough for all of your continued support of the show through listening, through Patreon, through your reviews, and through spreading the word on social media. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcasting production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently approve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I, for one, am so proud to be a part of an eclectic group of shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, 410 Owned, Historium, Vox Arcana, and The Podience. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find the links to all of our shows, the merchandise store, our blog, and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, all of that is on www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again to all of you for joining me for another installment of California Dreaming. And for all of my fellow American friends out there listening, I wish you a fun and safe Independence Day. Day off in the middle of the week, guys. Until next time, sweet dreams. Murder, the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another, a short, simple definition of a word that we're all familiar with. For most of us, murder is just that, a word or a definition that has no impact on our lives. But to some people, murder is much more than that. It's real. It's personal, because they've lost a loved one to murder, and I want to share their stories with you. My name is Mike Morford, and some of you may know me as co-host of the true crime podcast, Criminology. I'd like to invite you to check out my new podcast, The Murder in My Family. In each episode, I'll recount a single murder case and talk one-on-one with the family members of these victims to see how these tragic crimes changed their lives and where their search for justice has taken them since. Starting in July of 2018, you can find and subscribe to The Murder in My Family on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll join me for The Murder in My Family. Are you ready for Florida Man? Florida Man Strikes Again pulls headlines straight from Florida's newspapers and delivers them straight into your ears. We cover the weird, quirky, bizarre, and downright stupid crimes these Florida men always seem to be pulling. Laugh along with us at the ridiculous things some people do and be grateful you're not one of them. 